Well, hello, Bible love. Great to be with y'all. Today or tomorrow or someday this week is St. Francis Day. Who knows when this is even coming out? Um, is it Monday, Alan? Is today Monday? Uh, today's Monday. So this is going to come out on Thursday. So that means this week is St. Francis um, uh, Day that we celebrate. And you'll see lots of blessing of the animals if you're on Facebook and um, lots of cats and dogs and stuffed animals and all that good stuff. And if you remember this summer, listeners, I prayed this every time we did um, a new uh, Women in Ministry podcast. So we're bringing it back. Okay, so the Lord be with you. Also with you. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. When there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is discord, union, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. Grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Amen. So we are diving into Ezra. We'll be looking at one through six today and um, we're bringing in someone this first time we're doing this right the episcopal world is small but it's not quite small enough because there are folks out there we don't know and so um, I threw it out on the form of Facebook group which is a Facebook group with a lot of people that have a lot of ideas and a lot of opinions Um, and I said hey does anyone want to talk about scripture a couple people reached out the first of whom is the Reverend Claire Brown she's the rector of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Athens, Tennessee. I said the Episcopal Church is small. Mary Balfour and Claire just spent like 10 minutes talking about all the people in the South that they know and have in common. And I'm just over here in Texas, like, you do your thing. Yeah. So, Claire, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, Yeah, awesome. So, yeah, it was fun. Like, Claire and I are both younger rector women rectors of churches and so we had a lot of fun talking about that proud of you claire and your ministry and so glad to have you in the fold and as alan and i say if you come on the bible of podcast you instantly become our friend so we are so grateful that you're here and we're talking about ezra right ezra not in my top 10 picks for sermon prep i gotta say right does it even come for the lectionary for us? I, I look this up all the time. I didn't this time. Let me look real quick. Y'all talk yeah, amongst yourselves. I think it's, I, I don't, I'm, I'm guessing it is not in there because I'm not sure I have ever preached on this. Um, although I tend to not be an Old Testament preacher. I need to be better about that. Um, but um it is a little, these are two little interesting books that we're talking about right now, Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, Ezra today, we're just doing Ezra one through six, but there are only, um, let's see, how many book or chapters in the whole um, book? There's not many. Um, like, so yeah, yeah. Books, right. So Claire, tell us 
some of the things that really stuck out for you when you were reading Ezra one through six? What are some things that you're like, Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, this is a fascinating book in some ways, but not very preachable. I think it would be probably a really solid formation study, but because it's all the details and working out the logistics of how are God's people returning home? How are they walking out of the Babylonian captivity and into God's promises? And it turns out that just like most of the big transitions and big hopes and moves of our lives today, there's a lot of really boring details and stress and conflict that is happening behind the scenes. And so this is the outworking of that, which is probably why we're not getting Ezra chapter two with its bizarrely detailed census of everyone's descendants and how many animals of every kind in our Sunday lections. We don't want that. We don't want to preach about that, but um, there is a beautiful humanity, I think, to seeing behind the scenes of how these people are actually working out the beautiful poetic promises like we read in the book of Jeremiah and these um, words of the prophets. Here's actually the history of what it meant to walk back home, what it meant to go return to your grandparents' homeland that you have no memory of, um, having really high expectations and not going the way you thought it would, running into people that you thought you would um, – be kin to or, or find congruence with and finding conflict instead. It's just very relatable stuff tucked in here in this little book. Yeah. Claire, I'm really glad you said that because I do think sometimes we're like, why is all this here? Like, why do we need to know like all this history and all that? Like literally the, there's like pages and pages and pages of the Israel Israelite clans and the list, you know, why do we need to know all that? And sometimes we do, do like get caught up in the weeds of it all. But I appreciated your take on that, that it's like actually a relatable thing for us, not just a history lesson, because this is just like our life is too. Like when you tell a story, you got to kind of tell some of the background of the story, right? Like I preached about my dogs yesterday, y'all Hazel and sugar, I know Alan's rolling his eyes, but I couldn't just be like Hazel and sugar. I had to say like, when we got Hazel, when we got sugar, when we, I know I'm comparing my dogs to the Bible, but you know what I mean? Like you need the background. You need it all. Um, so I appreciate your take on that, Claire. I think that's, that's really good. Now that Alan's done laughing at me, I'm sure he has something to say. No, <laughs> it, it makes, so I, you'll probably hear a lot about this and over the next year of the podcast, but I've started docent training at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. So I'm going to be a tour guide in an art museum. It's basically right. like a college art class. I love so it. yeah, the, the first session, the Modern Art Museum, it's a beautiful building itself is, is art. And so the first thing was a tour of the building and we watched this documentary about the making of it. And there's this quote, um, I think the quote's by Frank Gehry, the architect. He says that, that a building starts as an idea that's immeasurable. And then it becomes plans and things that are infinitely measurable. And then it becomes something, again, immeasurable. And I think about this, like the idea of the people of God, right? Like it's a big idea. And then you've got to have all this stuff. You've got to have Ezra where it says these people and these people and this distance and all of that. 
so that you can then get to the other side where hopefully someday it'll become a reality that it becomes immeasurable again. But it's important for us, I think, to look at, at the junk that's in the middle of this and the list of names that no one can pronounce and, and all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even in chapter one, um, just, you know, getting into the text, uh, starting at verse six, we see this, just basically the inventory of loot that they get sent home with, which has some nice um, parallels that I think, I think we can assume are intentional with the liberation from Egypt when it was time to go find your promised land, your neighbors voluntarily gave you everything you would need and said, please get out of here. Um, So we're seeing that kind of repeated. Um, But in this case, it's also, um, it's not new loot, right? It's what was taken before Mm -hmm. and going back and recovering that and saying, we're going to, we're going to return this home with you. But even the details there, right? Gold basins and silver and bowls and other bowls and knives and all of these things. Say how many? Excuse me for interrupting. Does your Bible say how many of each? Oh, yes. I mean, like, that's so detailed. It's a lot of stuff. And it can feel a little fluffy. But what's funny is actually I uh, on my to-do list this week is to touch base with my Alter Guild chair because the Alter Guild wanted to go in together and purchase something for worship in our parish in honor of a member of the altar guild who died recently. And so I was thinking about how even in our Episcopal tradition, the idea of giving specific vessels for worship that have a practical use, but are also very beautiful with someone's name and legacy involved can sometimes be cumbersome, but often also comes from this place of love and connection to the service and work that that person had. And so I was even thinking, like, I wonder if this is also, you know, does somebody have in the back of their mind, oh, I know those 30 gold bowls. And I remember this moment in worship when I was a little girl before the captivity. And, you know, is there um, community memory that goes along with these belongings? and has kept them holy in the minds and hearts of the people. Yeah. I think about when I served um, in upper South Carolina, everything in Texas is like brand new. 10 years is, is old around here. But when I was in upper South Carolina, like I would celebrate with a chalice or a patent. It's like 150 years old. I'm thinking about like all the people before me that have elevated this, all the people that it sit from, like there's something to that. You know, some kid is going to hold one of these gold bowls and be like my great grandfather was the first one that brought this in or, you know, there is that community legacy of it, that, that this has been used for worship for long before we got here, God willing, long after we're gone. And it holds that community memory. That's a beautiful idea. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I hope I'm not getting into anything too tricky, but I thought this was very interesting. Um, I don't know if y'all have read at all, but you know, the, the diet, the Episcopal church and the, Acne Church are trying in, in South Carolina are trying to like come together and take the lawsuits off the table, which is all beautiful and wonderful. And there's like this real detailed list of like who was getting what and who had to give up. What. And one of the things I saw was some of the chalice and patents, neither one were getting and they were going to a museum in Charleston. And I thought how beautiful that was and how important they were 
that not one wanted it over the other, that it actually needed to go to this place where everybody could visit them and put their eyes on them and see it and not have a home in one place or the other. I thought that was really beautiful reconciliation, you know, to figure that out. Because even these things that we're talking about, these physical things that we're talking about are really important to people. They really, really are. So sorry if I got into something too political, but I just thought that was really sort of interesting um, that they chose to do that. So anyway, back to Ezra. (laughs) But I think that's, that's a a way of connecting right between our tradition and what we're reading here is that um, the stuff can get in the way, but when we don't put it in the way, it can be this lens into the holy and it can be, it becomes holy because we use it for holy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something Claire, you said when we were, we talking before we hit record was this is all preparation for reentering after the exile. Right. And you know, we're, we just hit like two years on this podcast, which means we're a little over two years, whatever from the pandemic and some places you know, are just figuring out my plate. We're all just figuring out how are we the church today? Not that we're not going to compare this to the exile, but we were out of our buildings for a time, right? When we come back, we have very detailed lists. Instead of like 30 gold balls, we have like six feet separation. And and we have these very detailed things of how are we going to be a community when we get back from this? Um, So I was just interested your thoughts on that. I mean, how, in, in what we're reading here, do you see, do you reflect on anything you're experiencing in the St. Paul's? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, can can we have permission to kind of skip chapter two, which was just a list of... It was. Sure. Totally. Yeah, to the work. Uh, <laughs> great. Well, let's skip chapter two, because I think chapter three is actually where we see um, that being spoken to. Um, yeah. There's this really... So, you know, we still see this set up there... They've gone, like they've returned to the homeland. They've um, started to settle in towns, which is also like, um, that's an immigrant and refugee imagery, right? That you're showing up and the the house your grandparents lived in might not be there. Um, And so there's a lot, even as detailed and cumbersome and bureaucratic as this text is, think about all the families, right? What was the final number? Over 42,000 people. So that's, that's the size of my entire rural county in Tennessee. If they, if we all had to like pack up McMinn County, Tennessee and move thousands of miles, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg of detailed lists of things that people were figuring out. But they've but also taken a heck of a lot of people to wrangle too and like put back and to put back into a system of, of worshiping and rebuilding and that's a lot of, that's a lot of taking care of. Yes, that's a lot of details of common life. Yeah. But in that, they're also setting up to build the altar. Mm-hmm. Um, and they that's kind of first things first. We have to have an altar so that we can start having some form of worship. Um, which almost, you know, again, not to be trite in our comparison, but thinking about, okay, well, we can't gather together. In, it's March 2020, and we don't know what to do. What can we do? Well, I guess we can do Zoom morning prayer, which feels like not the same at all, but we've got to start somewhere. Right? 
Um, but then as it goes on toward the end of this chapter, they finally getting to a place where they've, you know, I imagine clearing away rubble and amassing resources and just getting people organized. Um, and we see that, you know, they had to start paying the workers kind of ahead so that they could plan and get to it. And it's two years after they've arrived at the house of God in Jerusalem there in verse eight. Mm-hmm. So two years after Cyrus says you can go and they, and then they arrive. So there's, then there's travel time. Then they've just gotten themselves ready for two whole years and they finally lay the foundations and the priests and their vestments are stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets and they sing responsively. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation had been laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy. And I just think about all the times um, in the last year, because it's been about a year since my folks went back in our building. We worshiped outdoors for a long time. And there was such a mix of joy and sorrow altogether. Um, just this fall, like it took us almost a whole year just to get acolyte training back. Um, cause kids forgot or graduated or decided they'd rather work on the weekends or, you know, yeah. yeah. And so getting acolytes back last month, people were crying about these like wrinkled scraggly teenagers tracking grass up the aisle. Right. I love it. Because it, it's a symbol of what was before. Um, you know, the first Holy Week since 2019 in our space together, the first Christmas in our space together, all of those milestones that are a recollection of what was before. And then, of course, our community, like others, we see the ebb and flow of um, growth and loss in the last few years. And so the first Holy Week in our space was also the first Holy Week without longstanding members of our community who had died since the last time that happened. I don't know. What do y'all hear here in this section? Yeah, I mean, I, when I was reading this, I, I could not help but think about the pandemic. Um, I don't know when you started at St. Paul's Claire, but I started at resurrection in October of 2019. So I'm just at my third year. So I literally like four months and then this pandemic. So I don't really know what it was like before the pandemic. I mean, I had one Christmas, you know? Um, and so what's been interesting to me is what, when I read this and, and comparing it, I mean, I went right to the pandemic is watching the church open up again and going back to the way we did things before, but also not going back to the way we, I mean, like the, the, there are some things that are very different. So this wording of the rebuilding of the temple, to me, it feels like it really is rebuilding in a lot of ways. Some things that we had before and some things that we didn't. For example, during the pandemic, we finally got back in the church. I had everybody, when you go up for communion, to go from the back to the front so that you would go out the side doors and come back in so that nobody was around each other right? Trying to keep everybody safe. They love that. And we like have not switched it back. You start at the back of the church at Church of the Resurrection. And I hope 80 years from now, they're still talking, still at the back of the church. And we can be like, hey, that changed the pandemic. 
and you get a little breath of fresh air during the middle of the church you know, service and you get to go outside and hear the birds chirp. They love that. So that to me is sort of what might be happening here in Ezra as well. Like what new things are going to come about in this? Now I know there's some turmoil in that, but you know, Alan, what about you? Yeah. I mean, these folks are no doubt shaped and formed by the exile. And so they come back and it's not the way it's always been. And that, I mean, that's the battle is we're all rectors. I'm sure we've all been asked, when can we go back to the way it was? Right. We literally can't. We can start to do things like we were accustomed to, but it's still going to be different. And so how can we, how can we come back to those things that we cherish? How can we let go of those things that, you know, maybe should have let go of and how can we incorporate the new things we knew? Right. Like, you know, I, you mentioned zoom morning prayer. I did my first Eucharist on zoom um, from uh, a home office with some bread and a cup of wine in September of 2017. So my, I was in the midst of hurricane Harvey, right? And so the neighborhood around the church, I was flooded out of my house, all this stuff. And I remember talking to Jim Farwell, my liturgy professor, and was like, I feel really uncomfortable about this. He's like, we can debate whether or not it's Eucharist, but it's what your people need. Right. right. And then you fast forward three years later, I'm helping, you know, I'm on dialysis and staff at this point. I'm helping everybody all over upper South Carolina figure out like, questions about liturgical theology and whatever. Like this is a pastoral response, but like you think about these zoom morning prayers, my congregation in Houston, five years later, they every morning and every evening they do, um, Facebook Live, Morning Devotions, and Compline. And they've been going for five years. And so that's become a part of that community's life, right? And so how, how can we take these things we learned in exile? How can we take these and incorporate it into the new people of God that we've become? Yeah, that's awesome. All right, y'all, in the interest of time, I want to make sure we get through. Okay, so Claire, help us here. But I mean, something happens. We get excited about building this temple and then it's like, whoop, breaks are really put on hold, right? Because some opposition happens. So will you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, so, but here's my question that yeah. I didn't get clear and do enough homework on. I'll own that. Okay. When we jump into chapter four, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple on and on who were the adversaries oh yeah i don't know or is that a straw man situation yeah i think it's some people say yeah. i've heard yeah yeah well, okay that was your vibe too don't own that claire because we're all coming at you with the same thing like we don't know we don't know but something happened right somebody was opposing something <laughs> yeah and then we see you know there in verse three Here's to me, who's the adversaries is an interesting question, but it's maybe not the most helpful because we can't always control who the adversaries are, but we can control our response. Right. But Zerubbabel, who is this leader of God's people, says, you shall have no part with us in building a house for our God, but we alone will build for the Lord, the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that is just spiteful. Yeah. Yep. Hard line. You're not here with us. You're not invited. That's a hard no, as my brother would say. Sometimes I'll ask him a question and I assume the answer is going to be no. He's like, it's not a no. It's a hard no. <laughs> and that's what this is. Like, 
that's a hard no. And, and so then what do they have to do? They have to work through it to figure out because they've been in exile all this time and they want to build this temple. Yeah. And we know, you know, from other resources in the history of this region, that there was some significant tension between those who were returning from exile and those who had been left behind in the first place mm-hmm. um, of the, those who had gone to Babylon feeling as if they were the true remnant. Um, and so it's almost, it's a creation of another ethnic group from within the people of God. And this, I think, you know, we could argue like, did that happen? Did that distinction happen at the exile or is really this the moment where that's cemented? when there's an opportunity to not see someone as an adversary, but as a partner and instead choose to draw the line. Um, yeah. I mean, I, big question. Cause you think about Dr. Tony hinted at this. It's like people are off in exile. They're figuring out how to make community. The people around them are other people. And so they partner up and they intermarry and all of this. And then they come back and they're like, you go here, but your wife or your husband or your kids, they got to go there. Like that's no longer an intellectual exercise during the exile and all that. I think maybe you're right. Like there's something interesting to think about, but it really becomes a distinction when you try to walk in the temple and you've got someone who doesn't belong. What do you do in those moments? You know, I, I think, you know, Mary Balfour, you brought up the Episcopal Anglican split and that's a whole nother deal. We're not going to talk about that, but in the diocese of Virginia, right? <laughs> no, because I think in the diocese of Virginia, um, the rector of Truro Parish, which is an Anglican congregation, and the former bishop of Virginia, they're like, there's things we disagree about, but like, what can we do together? Mm. Right. And that's what I hear in um, South Carolina. You yeah. know, they're trying to figure out, we're going to disagree, but like, we got to move past this, right? Like, we're no longer. We Protestants are no longer killing Catholics. Catholics right. are no longer killing Protestants, right? That happened for a while. Right. Because, like, we were trying to say it, set that hard no. 500 years later, we can say, oh, yeah, we're siblings. Yeah. But but how do you do that in the moment? Yeah. Right? How do we do that with Anglicans? Right? How do we do that with people who don't fit our description? I love, I don't, I wrote it down, but could you say the way you phrased it? Like, what's the risk of us making our vision too small? Mm-hmm. I think when that's it comes right. to who our neighbor is. That's, I don't remember I what I said, but that sounds good. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm giving you credit for that. I mean, yeah. there's a risk there. Like we think we're protecting something, but what is it actually costing us to have too small of a vision? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also, so, um, you know, we've, we've just met, we're just becoming friends. Um, so I'm married to a community organizer who. Uh, directs a nonprofit that's grassroots organizing across the state of Tennessee. And so I am influenced by his work. And I also see through all these six chapters, especially chapter one and chapter four, part of me is, you know, I hear his voice in the back of my head saying, Kings don't just decide to do things. There were people on the ground working to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Who does it, right. Um, and I think we don't see that with chapter one. Mm-hmm. Chapter one is kind of getting, um, The motivator behind the power is the spirit of God. Um, Here, though, where we see there's opposition, it is contributed, like it's attributed to these different contributing agents who, you know, wrote the letters and did the antagonistic campaign to stop the building after they were excluded. And so there's also this interesting political element that's happening 
And I mean, political in the sense of how are people organizing themselves yeah. and either resisting or aligning with power to achieve their goals and how the smallest political unit is actually a conversation, right? The conversation yes. you could have said, let's work together or no, you have no part in this. Yeah. And then it escalates and builds from there. Your husband, does he work Is his grassroots group? Is it part of the DART network? No, that, no. It's, it's, okay. Uh, it's so there's a group in the Midlands of South Carolina where I live, Columbia area that was, and they're big. I mean, everything builds to this con- confrontation where elected leaders stand there and the people, they call that, maybe we can talk about it in a couple of weeks, the Nehemiah action. Because, yeah. right, it comes from this section where, like, the king's doing this and the people organize and say, king, you probably shouldn't do that. And, yeah, yeah. and yeah. this is right out of that playbook is the people rising up and saying, we have a voice. You're going to hear it. And how do we how do we find our voice? And yeah. that's part of what I hear in this. Mm-hmm. Well, and they do find their voice, right? Because they start working on this temple again, right? So that's chapter five. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep moving us, y'all, because my time yeah, yeah. is off. I no, well, and the transition at the end of chapter four, I think, catapults us there is that they get the letter, they stop working, and then they wait until the second year of the reign of the next king, which is right. also savvy organizing to say, I'm going to let you get a year under your feet before I ask you for this big thing. Very smart. I thought about that too. I was like, this is a good organizer. They understand. Let's not just move right into the next thing. Much like let's don't, we finished our capital campaign. Let's start another one. You know, you know give them a year, give them a year. Let them think about it a little bit. Right. So they, they, they give them a year and then they begin working on this temple again, which is chapter five. Um, and, um, I'm sure there's some beautiful things that happen in that. Um, and I want us to talk about it if we have time. And then chapter six, is all about um, sort of these emperors coming back and also this temple being dedicated and the Passover beginning. And I can just envision this like beautiful celebration of ministry moment with this temple being dedicated. You know what I mean? Like those just really holy or, or an ordination or just when you feel the spirit, you know, I just went to a Curcio closing yesterday. It was just what I envision heaven may be like, you know, um, that's what I'm thinking this is about in chapter six. So what do, what do y'all think? What were your thoughts? Nobody had thoughts on chapter six? No, I mean, I think it's the culmination of this effort. And you see like in, in chapter six, verse 16, it starts to talk about, they offered the dedication. They had a hundred bulls to a rant, like, they're going all out. I mean, they're, they're celebrating the fruits of their labor. And I mean, it sets up and saying, we did this. And and part of that is not just the building, I don't think, is in the midst of all of that work is they figured out or they're figuring out how are we the people of God again? And so kind of it's the rebuilding of the temple, right? That, But it's also the rebuilding of the people. And let's mm-hmm. celebrate it all. Kind of like the celebration of new ministry. I had mine a couple of months ago. It has very little to do with me. It has everything to do with us in my congregation. Yeah. And I see that here. It's not the building. It's the community. Mm-hmm. And I think we see that too, that this section ends with the Passover. Right. We began with this um, return from exile, return from slavery connection. Um, and here, this is, remember the feast that makes us who we are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you said it. And I don't know what version y'all are using. I'm in the Good News Bible. But one thing that just when talking about rebuilding and the temple dedicated and the Passover, the word joy is over and over and over in this in this version. And I hope it is in yours, too. Um, and that those kind of words get me excited, make me feel excited um, because, yes, God's work is really tough, which is in these six chapters. I feel like we've seen that like some really tough work but like a lot of joy too. And, and how do we get more focused on the joy than just all the tough work? Mm-hmm. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any parting words that we must know about anything? I don't think so, but this was a delight. Okay. Thanks well, here's what my parting words are to you, Claire. I loved getting to know you. What a joy to have you on today. And I want to know what your favorite psalm is so that you can come back next semester. And like we're still in school, I talk in semesters, but church talks in semesters, right? Um, So you can come back and talk about your favorite psalm with us because we're going to be spending a lot of time in the psalms. So Mm. thank you for being here with us, Claire. Listeners, as always, remember that we love you, but most importantly, God does. 